Amen. Well, good morning, church. It is incredible to be in the house of the Lord. I honestly believe that. There is no other place that I would rather be than right here. I hope you feel the same way. Amen. Amen. Uh, hey, I just wanted to tag on uh, just uh, uh, about the announcement. We are doing a trunk or treat this year. And I know you might be sitting there and you might be wondering, uh, why trunk or treat? Why, why on Halloween? Why are we doing this? Um, and, and I'll tell you what, the Lord put a conviction in my heart a few years ago that, um, that on the darkest night of the year, maybe the darkest night, I, I'm not going to sit by idle and do nothing. I feel like, man, I need to get out there. And if I can just tell someone about Jesus, then it's all worth it. And that's really what it's all about. If we could lure someone in with a piece of candy and then tell someone about Jesus, that's what we do. And so we're like, you know what? Our theme is always light the night, light the night. On the darkest of nights, I believe we need to let our light shine the brightest. Amen? Amen. That's why we do it. Well, welcome here. Hey, we're continuing in our series, uh, Strange Stories of the Bible. Um, the Bible is so chock full of good stuff. Amen. There are many, so many awesome stories, so many great stories. There's stories like the Tower of Babel, you know, when men thought they could be as great as God and build a skyscraper. And as they're building it, God didn't like it. So God confused the languages. And, and, and we remember that child from sun, or that story from Sunday school. Remember like Daniel and the lion's den? When Daniel uh, refused to stop praying and they tossed him into a pit with a bunch of lions and none of the lions ate Daniel, which is a good thing, right? That's always a good thing when you don't get eaten by lions. Um, so I always remember that was a great story. There's a story of Jesus and the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, and how, you know, he sees her pain and he brings healing and he reveals to himself that he's the Messiah. And then she goes back and tells her whole town and the whole town kind of has a revival because of that meeting and there's just some awesome awesome stories throughout scripture but then again there are also some stories that don't get as much press coverage if you know what i'm saying they're the weird stories the obscure stories the stories that maybe you have never heard of maybe your sunday school was too afraid to share them with you but your pastor is not Right, Your pastor is going to share them. And so I honestly believe in a verse that Paul wrote to Timothy when he said, All scripture is God-breathed, and all scripture is useful for teaching and rebuking and training in righteousness. And the word that I focus on there is all. Right, That means not just the, the stories that we all know, but also some lesser-known stories. And so that's what this series is really about. It's focusing on some lesser-known stories, maybe some verses that we're not quite sure where they line up. So in the, uh, I guess, in the style of Ripley's Believe It or Not, or from a plot line from Stranger Things, we embark on this series called Strange Stories of the Bible. Today we're going to turn to Genesis 6, because there's an interesting passage of scripture found in Genesis 6. We all know that in the Bible there are giants. I'll bet you guys can name me at least one giant. Right? 
Is, that, does, is there someone in here that can't name me at least one giant? Right? We all know there's one giant, Goliath. But did you know that there, there's lots of more giants that the Bible records? Uh, um, okay, we're not quite there yet. I'm going to get there in a second. Thank you. Um, however, Goliath had four brothers. And the Bible records that each of those brothers was probably about a foot taller than Goliath was. So there was five of them altogether, which is maybe the reason why David drew five stones out of the brook instead of one. Lots of giants roaming around. If you were with us in the spring and you went through the Chase the Lion series, you'll know that Beniah, he struck down an Egyptian giant. So we know there's an Egyptian giant. The Bible records that there are the Anakites and the descendants of Anak there that were of great giant stature. And the list goes on and on and on. But have you ever wondered where do these giants come from? Nobody? I'm, hit, I'm not hitting the target today. One person. Thank you, Lee. You know what? These giants in the Bible seem to be unreal proportions. I mean, our tallest person that you and I might know, the tallest person in modern era, um, is a man by the name of Robert Wadlow. And he's confirmed as being the tallest person in, um, in the modern era. If you go to a Ripley's Believe It or Not museum, you'll see his statue or his likeness. He measured in at 8 feet 11 inches. So that's, pretty, that's a pretty tall guy. Right. Um, so uh, so eight feet, 11 inches. Now, the, you might think, well, there's got to be an NBA guy that's tall. The tallest NBA guy, uh, Manute Bull. Right. Manute Bull was seven, seven. Um, of which he's standing next to, if you remember back in the day, Spud Webb. That tells you how old I am. But Spud Webb was about four, ten. And so it was actually funny um, playing against that NBA team. They had like the shortest guy in the NBA and the tallest guy in the NBA on the same team on the court at the same time. And so it was like one guy's running under your legs, the other guy is like towering over you. So, so what do you do? Uh, most of you are familiar with um, wrestler Andre the Giant, right? Andre the Giant was seven feet five. So he's a, another big guy. Um, and then uh, more modern a little bit is Shaquille O'Neal. Shaquille O'Neal is a huge guy. He's 7'1". Again, he's standing next to Kevin Hart. So uh, the comedian there, that just shows you how, how big Shaquille O'Neal is. Um, so all of these guys are really big. They're, they're giants. But all of them are way shorter than the giants that we would record in Scripture. In fact, Scripture tells us that Goliath, um, Goliath there was six cubits and a span, which is about nine feet nine inches tall. There you go. There's our graphic. So nine feet nine inches tall, and so that just seems extremely large. Um, and, and I wondered where, how, how were they so big? How did these guys get so huge? Is it a genetic mutation? Was it a gland disorder? Um, were they engineered by aliens? Right? Or as Genesis 6 might allude, 
were they half-breeds between humans and angels? All right, now I, you guys should have all sat up straight and woke up a little bit. Now, I promised you weird in this series, didn't I? Because it's going to get just a hair weird today. Let's dive into Genesis chapter 6 as we deal with one of the hardest passages in all of Scripture to interpret and to understand. Uh, I am not afraid to tackle it. Um, so today I have titled my sermon, Nephahu. Nephahu, all right, some of you are lost already. All right, let's start reading in verse 1. When the human beings began to increase in number on the earth, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God, and I have that underlined, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful. Now, that phrase, sons of God and daughters of humans, is going to be key to our study today, and we're going to circle back to it, but um, it's so important. So they saw that they were beautiful, and they married any of them that they chose. And then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with the humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be 120 years. Verse 4, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards. Now, this is where it starts getting strange because Nephilim is not a word that you and I are used to, right? How many of you guys have heard that in the English language? Right? It's not really an English word, uh, the Nephilim. Um, now, if you're old school, you have a King James Version here today, it might say giants. Giants were on the earth in those days. Um, and also afterwards, when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans, and there we have that exact same phrase again, and they had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. And the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the, earth, of the human race had become on earth, and that they had every inclination of thoughts of the human heart was evil all the time. And so the Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. Verse 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And of course, you are familiar with the scriptures that follow this about Noah building his ark and the... Uh, animals coming two and two and all of that. But before we get to Noah's story and all of that, this passage of scripture has Christians all over the place trying to interpret it um, because it's ambiguous. First of all, we have this ambiguous term called Nephilim. What is this word called Nephilim? Well, in the Hebrew, Nephilim translates as fallen ones. It means fallen ones. But it also commonly refers to giants. And so if you have the King James Version, the New Living Translation, um, in fact, there's a whole slew of translations that uh, replace the word Nephilim with the word giants. It says there were giants in the earth in those days. And so a lot of times in our modern translations, the word Nephilim, 
and the word giant are used interchangeably. So what do we know about these Nephilim? What do we know about these giants in Genesis chapter 6? Well, we do know that they are heroes of old. They are men of renown. And we know that their parents were a little odd. They were the odd couple. Some of you might feel like a Nephilim today, right? Uh, Mismatch. Their fathers are described as sons of God. And their mothers are described as daughters of humans. And in this passage of scripture, it's very peculiar that the Bible would describe them that way. Wouldn't you just say, hey, here's their parents? Or if they're both of human origin, wouldn't you just bypass that? Why do you have to say sons of God and daughters of man? So, so the Bible is very... Um, it's very straightforward about the contrast here. However, we're very unclear what that contrast means. What does that mean? This distinction has led some Christians to interpret that sons of God is completely different than daughters of man or daughters of humans. So they must be of supernatural origin. Christianity, Christian scholars have many theories about how to interpret this, um, but there's really just four main theories, and I'm going to list them real quick for you, uh, and then we'll dive in. So there's four main ways to interpret this passage of Scripture. And the first way is the fallen angel theory, that the Nephilim were fallen angels. After all, it does, Nephilim does mean fallen ones. Well, what fallen ones? And they would say that, Fallen ones refers to angels, and it's this, this fathering of human children that produced this race of giants. Now, before you think that this viewpoint is preposterous, or it's absurd, this was the main interpretation in all of Jewish tradition and antiquity. So up until about five um, A.D., the 5th century, this was the main interpretation of this passage of Scripture. Still today, this interpretation is the dominant theory presented on the History Channel, on Ancient Aliens. If you ever watch Ancient Aliens, um, this is what they ascribe to, only they might call it not angels, they might call it aliens or something like that. Um, which, by the way, on a side note, Hollywood is not the best place to get your doctrine from. Okay. I, I feel like I just have to throw that in there for, for one guy that watches too much History Channel. Right? Um, Hollywood is not usually good at, at Bible doctrine. In fact, if you watch the movie Noah um, with Russell Crowe in it, many of you have probably seen that. That story is not biblical at all. It does not follow the biblical account. In fact, you will see depicted in that movie Nephilim that present themselves as gigantic rock creatures. And uh, they look like Sting from the Fantastic Four, right? And they're roaming around and they're talking to Noah and all of that stuff. That is, that is pure Hollywood at its best. So none of that is really as accurate. And so um, I would say 
don't go to Hollywood for Bible doctrine. Right? So now there is a spin-off of uh, the Fallen Angel theory, which is the demon possession theory, which these weren't really fallen angels at this point in human form. This was uh, angels that had fallen, and they're now demons, and these demons are possessing them, which are now marrying women and, and, and that kind of thing. So, um, so it's just really kind of a spin-off of the fallen angel theory, a little bit different. Then uh, if you're looking for something that's not quite so supernatural in nature, there is the Sethite theory. Uh, we're getting a little deep today, aren't we? The Sethite theory. Now this is just simply um, this idea that the phrase sons of God is used to describe the lineage from Adam's son Seth, which is a godly lineage. Um, it's a holy lineage. Um, as opposed to the line of Cain, which would be the daughters of man. And so they would say it's basically just two different lineages, and one is godly and one is worldly. And so we just have godly and worldly intertwining in marriage, and that's what it means. Um, and then lastly, the spiritual walk theory is just a little, and that's what I named it. I'm not quite sure the, the uh, predominant name. But it's a spinoff of the Seth theory that says, well, it, the idea is there. It's just godly men and uh, human carnal women. So evil women. Um, godly men, evil women. I'm not going to go any further with that one. You guys can debate that at home amongst yourselves. right? But it's basically just a generalization of the Sethite theory there. Um, so today I want to break down just the two main theories here, the fallen angels and the Sethite theory, and then um, I want to dive into what that really means for us today. Uh, so first I want to look at the fallen angel theory. And this theory really gains some steam when you start looking at that phrase, sons of God. Well, in Genesis 6 there, it gives us this phrase, sons of God, twice. And son is um, from the Hebrew word, uh, bene, it means son, and of God is ha Elohim, the supreme God, magistrate, a superlative, and so we get this idea of sons of God. Um, and this phrase is used about five or six times throughout the Old Testament, and in most every passage, it is clearly used to describe angels. So it's used other times to describe angelic beings which is kind of interesting. Probably the most dominant uh, one, the easiest to understand, is found in Job, Job chapter 1. If you guys remember the story of Job, Job is afflicted by Satan, um, and, he, and basically God strips away everything that Job has to test his faith. But before that ever happens, what, what, there's a conversation that takes place, isn't there? One day, Satan is going along, and it says, Satan positioned himself amongst the group of angels so that he could come in and petition God. And this is how Job 1, 6, and I'm going to begin reading in the King James Version says. It says, now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. So here we get this phrase, sons of God. It's the exact same found in Genesis chapter 6. However, in the NIV, it's translated, one day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord. And so we get this phrase, sons of God, being 
interchangeably used with angel, which is very interesting. So if you apply this to Genesis chapter 6, then you could understand that angels came to be known as the sons of God. And that angels came down, and the angels found how beautiful our women are. No, no husbands want to say amen out there? I give you guys one chance, and you blew it today. I'm amen in that. Uh, so if this interpretation follows out, then what happens is, is because God is so angry, he's so upset with what has transpired, the fallen ones, the fallen angels, that he destroys to, or he, he declares that he's going to destroy the entire world by flood and wipe the earth free of, of this race. This same occurrence can also be traced to Sodom and Gomorrah. In Genesis 19, there's an interesting story. This happens right before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. But two angels are visiting Lot. And these two angels are there, and they're eating dinner with Lot. When a group of men from the town, they come out to the city, and they want to have relationships with these angels. And then in the next passage of Scripture, the next chapter, we see God destroying Sodom and Gomorrah. So that adds a little bit of weight. It, it kind of is echoing the Genesis 6 account about God destroying that kind of behavior. It's also given just a little bit more credibility in 2 Peter chapter 2 when Peter is recounting um, the punishment that awaits all that is ungodly. And Peter says this, 2 Peter 2, 4, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world when they brought the flood on its ungodly people, but he protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes, and he made them examples of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And so here in this passage, Peter clearly states a few things. He clearly states that angels sinned and that they were put into chains, but he pairs this right with these two other stories of Noah and the flood and with Sodom and Gomorrah. And he groups those three together. And so uh, what scholars believe is that, is that Peter here is recounting this Genesis 6 idea of angels and demons and judgment and wrath, and then also in Sodom and Gomorrah. And so there's a lot of weight that goes into this interpretation of Scripture. However, there's also a few hurdles that they have to get across. Okay, so let me just share with you the other side of it for our, us that are a little bit more rational, right? First in Hosea 1.10, it says this, Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured nor numbered. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, 
you are not my people, there shall be said unto them, you are the sons of the living God. And so here we have this phrase, sons of the living God, and it's not a, it's not a word-by-word uh, translation from Genesis 6. Uh, this just adds the adjective living, but all the other words are the same. And here in this passage of Scripture, it's not used to describe angels. It's used to describe children of Israel. So clearly humans. So here we have at least one other time in Scripture where it's not referring to something supernatural or angelic. It's referring to humans. So we can deduce that not not all of these passages of Scripture, not all of this phrase, sons of God, refers to angelic. It can also refer to humans. Also, if you go back to our text, the destruction of the world, God's anger that raged against the world was not because of supernatural occurrences. His motivating factor of judgment was not angels, it was humans. See, verse 5 tells us the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become. The human race. How great, how, how wicked we were. And that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. God's focus of judgment here was not on angelic misconduct. Rather, it was on human misconduct. In our text, there's no direct mention of angels or or, uh, or, or messengers. There's only a... Uh, a translation and so you have to kind of read that read angels into our story through interpretation but it sounds to me like God's focus is clearly on humanity verse 3 says then the Lord said my spirit will not contend with humans forever for they are mortal their days will be 120 years so we're clearly talking about mortal not immortal or not super mortal or however you would say that but i think the very best evidence against fallen angel theory comes from the words of jesus himself i think jesus has more insight into the supernatural and the spiritual and heavenly realms than we do and there's a there's a a situation in matthew chapter 22 when the sadducees come to jesus and jesus is there uh, teaching, and they come to him, and they're trying to trick him, and they're trying to perplex him. And in those days, according to Old Testament law, um, when uh, your brother passed away and left a widow um, without any kids, then you would have to marry as the next brother in line. You would marry so that you could keep that that lineage going. So that was common practice. And the Sadducees came trying to trick Jesus, and they said, "Hey, Jesus, there was seven brothers." And each one married the same woman. He married one brother, and then he died, and then it was customary for the next brother, and then he died, and then they all kept dying before they had kids. And so seven of them, and then they asked the question, now whose wife will she be in heaven? Or whose wife will she be in the resurrection? And Jesus answers them, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures nor the power of God. At the resurrection, 
people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. And so Jesus basically is telling us that angels do not marry. Do, do, and they don't, it seems like they don't care to marry. So that's probably the best evidence against this fallen angel theory, probably against everything that you see uh, on cable TV. So let me just look real quick at the Sethite version or the Sethite interpretation here. Um, it's a little bit less intricate. It's a little bit plain. It's a little bit more modern. But it just stresses that, uh, you know, that it's really absurd to think that angels came down and married humans. That's just an absurd idea. It's far-fetched. That's something that shouldn't be on the History Channel. It should be on the Sci-Fi Channel, right? And that's what, that's what there is. And so, so they're like, you know what? We really think that this is more about the godly lineage of Seth from Genesis chapter 5, and they married uh, godly, or I'm sorry, the ungodly women of Cain's lineage in Genesis chapter 4. And, um, and, and God is definitely not against godly lineage intertwining with worldly lineage. That makes pretty good sense to me. In fact, that is a common theme throughout all of Scripture, is it not? That we need to uh, remain holy in God's sight. Now, the major problem with this is um, it assumes that everyone in Cain's line is evil and everyone in Seth's line is good. And um, it's hard to get a family that's all together in one place, all moving in the same direction, right? Uh, in fact, uh, Brock, I think I have a graphic of the lineages there, and that might be a little bit hard to understand or to see from where you're at. But if you look at the far left, um, that is Cain's lineage there. But you'll see right under Cain, you'll see a name called Enoch. And you, if you remember scripture, you'll know that Enoch was a very godly person. God, he was a very godly man. And he got taken up to heaven in a whirlwind. And so we understand, we understand that, um, well, th this also assumes like that, this also assumes that everyone in those lineages are good and, and they're bad. And then it also leaves out all the other lineages. So what about everybody else? And so it's like there, there's a little bit of uh, ambiguity when you start looking at this. So today, let me tell you where I land, and, and uh, I'm going to start getting some real importance to what we're talking about today. The real importance, uh, or, or where I land on this, is it, is it angels, is it humans? Um, I don't know definitively for sure. Is that what you guys want to hear? I don't know. Some of you might really like the fallen angel theory. Okay, some of you might say, that's absurd. I really like the Sethite, or I really like the spiritual theory. Um, to me, that's not what's important. It's not important to know where you come from. It's like, what is God saying? What is the moral here? What are we doing? And so, this passage to me is a little bit more about holiness than it is about heritage. See, the major takeaway from Genesis chapter 6, if you're reading from it, is not to be intertwined with evil. 
It's to come out and to be separate. That's the theme of what God is saying to us in Genesis chapter 6. And that's reoccurred through all of Scripture. Romans 12, 2, one of my favorite verses. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. 2 Corinthians six seventeen. What agreement can exist between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, come, up, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. And I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. And so I honestly believe today that this passage is not speaking uh, about the, the doom and the judgment, but the moral of it is, hey, I have called you to something greater. I've called you to come out and be separate, not to intertwine with that which is ungodly, that which is unholy. I've called you to be holy, to separate yourselves from the world, holy unto me. And so if you go back to Genesis chapter 6, let me share with you this. What do we know for sure? We do know that in those days there were giants. So that part is true. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. That is true. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. That is fact. But we get lost in the middle about how they came. Then the sons of God went to daughters of demon. and So we don't know that. So I implore you, when we read the Bible, stick with what you know. And we don't make doctrines and we don't make assumptions and we don't make guesses on what we do not know. Because that's where we get into trouble. Isn't it? ask Courtney if you would come to the piano because I want to begin to wind this down but but as I was studying this scripture and it's very difficult and there's lots of different theories and there's great men of God that that believe on both sides of this and it's hard to discern but but it struck me the Holy Spirit spoke to me and said you know what this is where you and I run into trouble we forget what we know and we try to piece it together in the middle, what we do not know, that which is ambiguous. And sometimes we allow our minds to work overtime a little bit. You ever let your imaginations run wild? Just for a hair? I think if you introspect for just a moment, you'll understand this. See, sometimes we build things up bigger than they are, because we're unsure of the facts. It's true. I do it too. I'm sure you do it. And in the Bible, the children of Israel do it too. Because there's one other passage of Scripture, one other passage of Scripture that mentions Nephilim. And it's in Numbers chapter 12. And in Numbers chapter 12, Joshua is sending 12 spies into the land. 
And it says this in verse 30. We should go up there and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. That's the report that Caleb brought back. But verse 31, it says, But the men who had gone with them said, We can't attack these people, for we're stronger than, than they are stronger than we are. And they spread amongst the Israelites a bad report about the land that they had explored. And they said, The land we explored devours those living in it. All the people that we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there, the descendants of Anak. We seem like grasshoppers in their own sight, and we look the same to them. So what did the ten spies do? They come back and they sowed seeds of doubt, and they sowed seeds of fear. Um, I'm sorry, fear. Because they attached to the giant Nephilim quality. And I think that's how Satan works in our lives so many times. Hear me out, church, because this is, this is important for us. So many times we don't have all the, we, we know this and we know this, and we don't know this, and we allow our fear and our doubt to get the best of us. And sometimes we build it into things that it is not. Like the doctor's report. And we know this, and we know this, but yet our fear builds it bigger than it is. And we stick, and we worry about it, and we stress out over it. The, the ambiguous part, the part that we do not know. And we say, oh, oh man, it's, it's got to be cancer, it's just got to be cancer. And we don't know that. We do it in our finances. We do it in our problems in life. We do it in every area of our life. And we say, you know what? This is what I know. This is, and, and it's fear that builds things up bigger. And Satan starts presenting things bigger than they are to strike fear into us. And oftentimes it keeps us immobilized. Let me tell you a quick story real quick. This is a personal story. Uh, about mm, 12 years ago, uh, I, I, I inherited an Easter egg hunt. And, um, and they said, okay, this year or next year, Pastor Ken, you're in charge of it. And so we began praying, we began working, and we're like, okay, how can we grow this? What can we do? And so, so we started taking over, and we began growing and just branching out and thinking about things. And, and I said, you know what? You know what? The best advertising is always direct advertising. So I wonder if I can pass out some flyers through our school system, through all of our elementary. I mean, that would be great if every elementary kid could take home uh, a church flyer advertising an Easter egg hunt. But do you know what I got when I asked around? I got people that told me you can't do that because there's this thing called separation of church and state. You can't do that because we tried that a few years ago and, and, they, and no one would let us do that. You can't do that because I know the principal over here and they, they would never let you do that. And they built things up bigger than they were. 
But we went in and we just said, you know what, we're going to try it. And so we started reaching out to schools, and schools one by one just started saying yes. Yes, Destin, yes. And I think by the end of it, we were in 12 different schools. 12 different schools. And then we were at this place where our parking lot wasn't big enough for, for us and all the parking. And, and I said, well, there's this guy that owns land that butts up to the church parking lot. I wonder if we can use his, his property as an overflow for parking. And you know what I heard? I heard people building it up bigger than it was. Uh, that guy doesn't like us. There was issues there 10 years ago, 15 years ago, and he'll never let us park there. And you know what I did? I went, I went over and I talked to him. And about 10 minutes later, we had full access to his property. And it wasn't anything that Pastor Ken did. Trust me, it's, not, it's, it's rarely anything that I do. My wife can amen that right? It's what God can do. God opens those doors. But the idea is, is that we don't build things up bigger than they are. And we don't let our fear or our imagination immobilize us from moving forward. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me today? Because I feel like there's probably somebody in the house that is affected by that scenario. Maybe you're here today and you say, Pastor Ken, man, you know what? I have stood idle out of fear because I built something bigger than it, what it was. And when I go to the doctors and I hear doctor's reports, I'm fearful and I'm worrisome because my imagination is running wild. And I build things up bigger than they are. And when God asks me to do something, I, I start thinking and my mind starts wondering and I start thinking about all of the obstacles and all of the things that I can't do. And, and Satan is just playing mind tricks. Today I'm going to ask you to put your faith and what you do know. What you do know. That there is a God. That he sent his son Jesus to die on a cross for you. So that you might have relationship with him. And that God loves you and loves you and loves you more than anything else. And because of your relationship with him, you can move forward in faith. You can move forward in strength. Now, Lord, today in this place, God, in our hearts, Lord, we've all been there. God, we've all allowed fear to keep us standing where we're at. We've all let our eyesights play tricks on us and allow the enemy to present himself bigger than he is. 
stronger than he is. God, I pray for everyone who's experiencing fear or doubt or anxiety or stress based on the things that we do not know. Lord, would you set us free today? Lord, help us be like the two spies. The two spies that had good reports. That came back and said, we can move forward because our God is bigger. Our God is greater. Now, Lord, pray that as we go from this place, Lord, that we would have eyes that see things as you do. Lord, give us strength. Give us wisdom. I pray that in your name. Amen. Amen. Amen, church. We're going to dismiss today. Go in the grace of God. I want want to remind you, these altars are always open. If you want to come forward and you want to pray, if you'd like me to pray with you, I'd be more than happy to. Uh, Remember all of our events. There are sign-up sheets out there. But go in the grace of God. We'll see you guys on Wednesday for Bible study. Come on out. Uh, It's going to be good. God bless you guys today.